Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of the History of Yugoslav Football podcast, Fontaine's WC. In the last episode, we focused solely on the European football events of the 1957-58 season. It was a season which changed English football after Munich, and in which Yugoslav football played a supporting role that time obscures. Domestically, the dominance of Svinas Fiesta be broken, albeit temporarily. The league season of that year itself will be one seeing the league change in size once more, this time to prepare for the size of the league dropping from 14 to 12. It coincided with a quite absurdly tight league while NK Zagreb and the newly christened OFK Belgrade were detached at the bottom, the gap between 12th and 3rd was only 4 points, with 11th and 12th going into relegation playoffs. These playoffs were even preceded by their own playoffs, RNK Split and Budaknost having to play off after finishing on exactly the same goal average across the season sending RNK into the relegation playoffs and, eventually, into the second league, alongside the other playoff losers, Spartak Subotica, to be replaced for the following season by Rijeka and FK Sarajevo. Those changes were hardly the only story of the season, however. With Bernard Vukash having departed, Hajduk collapsed to ninth to finish level on points with their city rivals, the relegated RNK, and only a 0.144 goal average saving them. As for Svenas Viesta, they would not even finish as the second best Belgrade side in the league. That Partizan would be the best in the city of Sviesta weren't was pretty much a given, but splitting the two would be Ratniki Bergrad who had been cup runners-up the season prior in a crazy cup final, in which they went in 3-0 up at half-time, yet managed to see Partizan come back to win 5-3, making Liverpool's efforts in Istanbul seem extremely tame in comparison. The late 50s would be the club's golden era, with the club becoming known as the Maestori Stad Dunava, the masters of the Danube, given that their grounds sat next to the river. But the winners of the league that season with relative ease would be Dinamo. They would be fired to the title by Drazan Jerkovic, one of the more forgotten players of the generation and one who was forced to retire early due to injury, but who would make history by managing the first ever game of the Croatian team post the breakup of Yugoslavia in 1990. At the start of the season, they drew manager Gustav Lechner away from Vojvodina and opened the season with a win over Svenis Viesta in Belgrade. Once the team hit the winter, they hit their stride, going 16 games unbeaten from the start of December to round off the season, winning by four points from the Belgrade trio of Partizan, Radniki and Svenis Viesta. Sviesta could at least console themselves with a cup win, beating Partizan and Dinamo on the way to the f- a 4-0 win in the final over Velez Mostar. 1958 was, of course, also a World Cup year, this time in Sweden. 
For the first time in the timeline of this podcast, this was a World Cup that began to resemble some sort of competently organised competition. With nothing overly bizarre going on in either qualifying or in between that and the World Cup itself. FIFA had, for the first time, brought in a rule that no team would qualify without having played at least one game. That in itself led to the first cross-confederation playoff, as Israel won its group after their opponents refused to play them, meaning that Wales ended up having to play them for the last place at the tournament, qualifying beyond them and leading the side to the only World Cup with all four of the home nations appearing. Yugoslavia were tasked with a three-team qualification group against Romania and Greece and qualified unbeaten with two away draws and two home wins thanks to a victory in a winner-takes-all match against Romania in Belgrade, courtesy of a double from Milos Milutinovic. Yugoslavia were, at this point, just behind the world's best. 1957 had seen them demolish Italy 6-1 in Zagreb, They tested themselves directly prior to the tournament with two internationals, one with a fairly experimental side in Budapest, losing 2-0 to Hungary, and one against England in Belgrade. Prior to mentioning that game's outcome, it's worth noting that Munich had seriously dented the strength of the English side. Tommy Taylor had top-scored in qualifying, Duncan Edwards was seen as the future of the national team, Roger Byrne was a regular, and Eddie Coleman was likely to be in the England squad also, neither available anymore. The Yugoslavia game would have a big impact on the squad. It was Bobby Charlton's audition for the World Cup, as manager Walter Winterbottom was unsure as to his readiness. He would find himself getting torn to pieces over the 90 minutes by Dragoslav Sekularac, who was being similarly auditioned, and, as a result, Charlton would never make it onto the pitch in Sweden. A hat-trick from Alexander Petakovic was the headline, as Yugoslavia thrashed the English 5-0. Yugoslavia were placed into a group with France, Paraguay and Scotland. None of the sides were considered as outright favourites for the tournament itself, ending up together due to the rather backwards manner in which the competition was seeded with pots based on location rather than standard, resulting in a Western Europe pot, an Eastern Europe pot, a Britain pot, and an everywhere else pot. This would result in a group that featured favourites Brazil, the Olympic champions of the USSR, England, and 1954 third-placed Austria, all in the same group. The only team in the entire World Cup who could say they had a favourable draw were Funnily enough, hosts Sweden, who had a weak Welsh side, a weak Mexico side, and the fast-faded and revolution-ravaged Hungarians to compete with. Yugoslavia began their tournament against Scotland. Unlike the farcical 1954 World Cup, the Scots turned up with some semblance of organisation, but it would be for naught as Petakovic would strike on an an angle on the edge of the six-yard box to put Yugoslavia ahead after just six minutes. Scotland equalised just after half-time with a header from Hearts' James Murray, 
but Yugoslavia will continue to have most of the game, with Scotland being forced to clear off their line later. The result will be 1-1. Next up would be the French, and for those wanting to keep track, Jules Fontaine scored 3 in France's opening group game before the two met at Arosvallen. Yugoslavia would have the game refereed by their old nemesis from 1950, Wales's Benjamin Griffiths. Fontaine, who else, would get the scoring started after only four minutes, converting a low cross from near the penalty spot high past Biara. The lead would last all of 12 minutes before Petakovic would benefit from some errant goalkeeping from Francois Remete to tap in and the game would go in one all at half-time mainly due to Biara making numerous saves against Fontaine. But the second half would be an exhibition of a different great goalscorer than Jules Fontaine. On 63 minutes, Milutinovic set free Toza Veselinovic for a one-on-one and Toza finished smartly under the keeper to put Yugoslavia into the lead. Fontaine would continue to be a menace, equalising in similar fashion to Toza's goal on 85 minutes. French fans would storm the field, but their celebrations of a hard-earned draw would be premature. Veselinovic would meet across at the back post and prod home a facile finish in the 88th minute to win it for Yugoslavia. With Paraguay defeating Scotland in the other group game, because of course Scotland would lose, it meant Yugoslavia entered their final group game, needing at least a draw to qualify through the groups once more. After 12 minutes, Radivoje Obnjanovic tapped in to put Yugoslavia 1-0 up after the Paraguayan defence posted missing. Parodi would equalise 8 minutes later after a stramash in the box led to him scoring while more or less tripping over the ball. On the half hour, the lead would be restored with Veselinovic scoring again, this time seeing a 25-yard shot slip low past the keeper at his near post. Yugoslavia would go in 2-1 up, but Paraguay would equalise through Aguero, Juan Batista Aguero, that is, and no relation to Sergio, who finished well from a narrow angle and off-balance. On 73 minutes, Stratko Rajkov would then put Yugoslavia in the lead, belting one home from 35 yards to put Yugoslavia in front. Romero would equalise soon after, but it was not to be for the Paraguayans. France would defeat Scotland, because of course Scotland would lose, to win the group on goal difference, with Fontaine adding another, meaning that Yugoslavia would go on to face the winners of Group A. It meant the chance to exercise some demons from 1954. It meant, once more, it was time to face West Germany. The Germans won their group with the same record as Yugoslavia, one win, over Argentina, before two come-from-behind draws against the Czechs and Northern Ireland put them through. The Northern Irish would qualify from that group also after a playoff against the Czechs, before falling to a Jules Fontaine-inspired France. The Soviets would require a playoff to put them through from their group of death over England. Since 1954, West Germany and Yugoslavia had not just developed a rivalry on the pitch, they had developed one politically also. A year prior, 
West Germany had broken off all diplomatic relations with Yugoslavia, as Tito had recognised the existence of East Germany as part of the thawing of relations with the USSR post-Stalin. When it came to the battle on the pitch, West Germany would start on fire with an early chance dribbling wide before Helmut Rahn put the Germans ahead, dribbling into the box and firing past Biara from the narrowest of angles. It was the beginning of what would be a fairly comfortable win for Germany on the pitch, if not on the scoreboard. In spite of hitting the woodwork twice, the Germans would not score again. For the second World Cup in a row, Yugoslavia would depart at the quarter-final stage courtesy of West Germany. The West Germans would go on to lose their semi to Sweden, before Jules Fontaine stuck four past them in the third-place game to set his own record for most goals in a World Cup. At the same time as Yugoslavia were departing the tournament in Malmo, in Gothenburg, a young striker by the name of Pele scored his first World Cup goal. He would go on to make a name for himself over the next decade or so. Football's first true global superstar had arrived. Next time on the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast... It's time for us to wave goodbye to the 1950s and prepare ourselves for the swinging 60s. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time.